Hey, this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff I'm Never Told You. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been in the news a lot in the past few weeks. Whether it's her health, Fox News falsely reporting her death, or the multiple movies based on her life in theaters right now, one of which, RBG, is nominated for Best Documentary Feature. And she also has a cameo in the upcoming Lego Movie 2. A while back, Bridget and I interviewed Erin Carmone, co-author of Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when this documentary, RBG, was about to be released, and we thought we would replay this episode for your enjoyment. So, happy listening. Hey, this is Bridget. And this is Annie. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. On May 4th, RBG, a new documentary about the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, hit theaters. And today we're going to talk about the notorious RBG, as she is sometimes known, and the social media frenzy surrounding her. Um, And I'm part of that social media frenzy. I'm a big fan. (laughs) I can tell by the shirt that you're wearing. Yes, 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 yes. Fun fact about Annie, uh, when she is doing an episode about something specific, she will dress up. I dress the part. She dresses the part, but only I get to enjoy it. I know, but you can imagine. So in our episode about action figures, we talk heavily about the Avengers, and she, you wore your special Avengers shirt. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and now I'm wearing my RBG shirt. Um, always, always a good day when I get to wear it. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll do like a very brief background here because uh, we, um, K- Kristen and Caroline did do a pretty in in depth episode on RBG, but just to just to set the scene a little bit, right, Bridget? Just to set the scene, exactly. So, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wasn't always the notorious RBG that we know and love. Uh, she was born on March fifteenth, nineteen thirty three, a Pisces like myself, <laughs> oh. of course. So she's probably super creative and very flighty. And <laughs> no, she's not flighty. She's a fucking justice. <laughs> That's just, I'm not gonna put that on her. That's on me. Um, <laughs> She was born Joan Ruth Bader in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, fun fact, she had the family nickname of Kiki because she was a Kiki baby, so that was her nickname. Um, when she started school, her mom discovered that her class had several little girls named Joan, and so she should go by Ruth instead to avoid confusion. Mm-hmm. And uh, she put up with sexist crap a lot during the early days of her career. She was docked for being pregnant, from Mental Floss, um, as newlyweds, Ginsburg and her husband, Marty, relocated to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, where Marty was expected to fulfill his Army Reserve duties for the next two years. Ruth took the civil service exam and qualified to be a claims adjuster, but then made the mistake of mentioning that she was three months pregnant with her daughter, Jane. Suddenly, RBG's civil service ranking was reduced, and with it, her title and pay. Ugh, that's terrible, but also... Even in looking at her biography a little bit, you can sort of see where all of these sort of stings of sexism, not only were they, you know, harmful for her career, but it's almost like she was like, okay, well, can I remember this for later? Right. And it seems like she really, they really sort of like lit a feminist fire in her in a kind of way. Yeah. Motivators for sure. Exactly. Exactly. 
Honestly, the dean of her law school sounds like kind of a jerk. In 1956, Ginsburg was one of only nine female students matriculating into Harvard Law. Now, her dean, it's been reported, Aaron Griswold, hosted a dinner for the women, and at the end of the meal, he went through the women one by one and said, how do you justify taking a spot away from a qualified man? Oh, oh. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Later, it was reported that he was joking, and it was just, a, it was all in good fun, but, oh, okay. you know, mm. I, part of me is like, oh, I'm sure, well. I'm sure I'm the sh- backlash happened, it's a joke now. Yeah, 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 <laughs> but I also feel like it's, you're talking about people who had just become law school students. Yeah. If the dean of your law school, even if he thought this was a funny prank or like, oh, this is really going to get their goats, uh-huh, right. that would be really... Demoralizing? Demoralizing. And it would, if, that would, if that happened to me as a young student, that would stick with me for life, I guess, sort of yeah. saying. And so either, even if he thought of this as a joke or it was all in good fun, because of the power imbalances there, I can imagine that that was not in good fun for the women who were participating in that dinner. Yeah, and it would kind of overshadow, because in your head, you're probably thinking, how am I going to, what jobs am I going to get? And then you hear this joke, and you're thinking, oh, well, maybe I have gotten, I've I've succeeded in this one step, but I have all these other hurdles now of finding a job when I'm competing with men, and they're probably just going to go with men a lot of the time. Exactly. That's probably exactly how it felt. Yeah. Not a good feeling. It's not a good feeling, and furthermore, even though she graduated at the top of her class, she found that very few law firms would open their doors to women, despite being, you know, really talented and having glowing recommendations from her professors. Ginsburg was actually only able to get her foot in the door with a lower-ranking district court judge, Edmund Palomari, and this was only after one of her mentors threatened to stop sending other clerks his way if he turned her down. And so, again, she was someone who was super talented, yet she had to go through all of these means just to get her foot in the door, despite the fact that they should have been knocking down her door to hire her. Right. (laughs) But when she found her groove, she really, really found it. Uh, She was notable for really understanding that the way that you create social change is a, a long game, right? She was playing chess, not checkers. And her work focused on winnable, achievable fights and chipping away at gender inequality that way. And so it was... Thinking about things of like, okay, how can I win this small thing that's going to have incremental change down the line? Which I think is so savvy and so smart. Yeah. She was like slowly moving us forward in ways that she she felt she could succeed. Um, in 1972, Ginsburg co-founded the Women's Rights Projects at the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. And in 1973, she became the ACLU's general counsel. The Women's Rights Project and related ACLU projects participated in over 300 gender discrimination cases by 1974. As director of the ACLU's Women's Rights Project, she argued six gender discrimination cases before the Supreme Court between 1973 and 1976, winning five. Rather than asking the court to end all gender discrimination at once, Ginsburg charted a strategic course, taking aim at specific discriminatory statutes and building on each successive victory. She chose plaintiffs carefully, at times picking male plaintiffs to demonstrate that gender discrimination was harmful to both men and women. The laws Ginsburg targeted included those that on the surface appeared beneficial to women, but in fact reinforced the notion that women needed to be dependent on men. I think that's so smart because, let's face it, if people feel like, you know, oh, this is something, women are asking for something special, you know, women want this. Focusing on 
you know, men, I think is so smart because people will look at that and think, oh, this isn't just women wanting, quote, something special. Right. It's, it, this is about equality. And this seems to permeate through her career. I read that when dealing with cases like this, she decided to use the word gender and not sex because she thought the word sex would distract or sort of yeah. confuse people. And so you can really get a sense of how smart she was at sort of packaging and marketing and being strategic about these cases. Yeah, um, just knowing... Kind of how to how to sell it, how to get it, get it, the support behind it, and how to get it passed, or how to win these arguments. It was very impressive, and eventually it led to her nomination to the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, President Bill Clinton nominated her as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court on June Fourteenth, nineteen ninety three, to fill the seat vacated by retiring Justice Byron White. Ginsburg was recommended to Clinton by then U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno after a suggestion by Utah Republican Senator Orrin Hatch. At the time of her nomination, Ginsburg was viewed as a moderate, which might surprise some of you. Um, Clinton was reportedly looking to increase the court's diversity, which Ginsburg did as the first Jewish justice since the 1969 resignation of Justice Abe Fortas and as only the second female appointee. Wow, that's, I mean... Awesome, but also... I know. Oh. It's always when you hear those first and you're like, yay, but also really? <laughs> yeah, that's generally my reaction to firsts. Mm-hmm. So Annie, what are some of your favorite things about RBG? Oh, I love that picture of her nodding off during the State of the Union address. And according to her, it was because she'd had a little too much wine. Oh, my God. I I can identify. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and um, also... Uh, when she was going undergoing treatments for colon cancer in 1999 and pancreatic cancer in 2009, she didn't miss one oral argument. And her workout is intense to this day, intense. And as someone who works out a lot, I she's a role model in that way. And recently, Stephen Colbert, um, he, he did the workout with her, and it was hilarious. And, of course, he could not keep up. Because who could? I know, right? <laughs> I love that about her. What about you? Do you have a a favorite Um, weird fact? Yeah, my favorite thing about her, this is a bit strange, is that even though she's this amazing figure, this icon, you can just tell that she is deep down a grandma, right? Like she (laughs) comes off, she just gives me such grandma vibes. Um, Our guest, Arind, who we'll be talking to a bit later in today's episode, there's this great MSNBC exclusive interview that Arin did with RBG. And in this interview, Arin shows her on her phone a picture of people who have gotten RBG-inspired tattoos. And RBG's reaction is such a great grandmother reaction. Here's what she says. I saw that and I thought it was I thought it was a joke. I thought it was something you pasted onto your arm, but I, I'm a little distressed that people are really doing that. Distressed? Why? Because why would you make something that can't be removed on yourself? Now that's a classic grandma <laughs> yeah. reaction. Yeah. <laughs> so I just love that you know, even though she is this amazing, amazing badass, you know, Supreme Court justice, that she also you can just tell that she's a grandma, and I I love that. I love that she, you know, just seems so normal despite being so important and influential. So that's what I love the most about her, I think. Yeah, she's very relatable. And we'll actually hear from the Washington Post's Erin Carmone in just a second. Erin actually wrote the book on RBG, literally. 
We'll hear from her after this quick break. Today, we're joined by Erin Carmone. Um, a brief bio on her. She's a journalist, author, speaker. She is a contributing writer to the Washington Post Outlook section and the co-author of Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which spent three months on the Times bestseller list. And I believe you worked with her? I did. We worked together at MSNBC. She's Actually, she's one of the reasons why I wanted to work there. At the time, she was one of the figures who was doing the most, like, fearless feminist journalism out there. And I was a big reader of Arin's work before I ever worked at MSNBC. And when I first got to work with her, I was like, oh, my God, it's Arin. <laughs> <laughs> be cool, be cool, be cool. I know, basically, basically. But I was never cool. But um, that's why I'm so happy that she's joining us today. So my first question for you is probably one that you get kind of a lot. So I know that the concept for this book was popularized by Shauna Kinesnick's Tumblr account, in support of Ginsburg's dissent of the Shelby County v. Holder decision, which struck down a portion of the Voting Rights Act. But how did this book come to be? Like, is it, is it typical for a book to be based on a Tumblr account? Is that unusual? Um, well, I think it's, it's not typical for it to be a book that anybody wants to read, to be honest. <laughs> we, it, so Shauna uh, never really was trying to create some kind of social phenomenon she was just upset that the Supreme Court had struck down this really important voting rights protection uh, that would have the impact of disenfranchising people of color. And so when she wanted to celebrate Justice Ginsburg's dissent, she just decided uh, to take to the Internet and make a play on words on Biggie Smalls and this then 80-year-old Jewish uh, tiny little lady with a very, very powerful voice. Um, but, you know, obviously it struck a chord, and I, our editor at HarperCollins, Julia Chaffetz is a real visionary, and she looked at all of these spontaneous celebrations, not just Shauna's, also um, our friend Amina So, you know, she did a meme, this is also, it's featured in this upcoming documentary, uh, You Can't Spell Truth Without Ruth. Oh, it's a classic. Yeah. <laughs> she plastered, she and her friend Frank Chi plastered posters all around D.C. with it. Um there, there was something happening, and, and Julia recognized it and said that there needed to be a new kind of biography that would capture the spirit of the Tumblr, which was, in fact, really substantive. I mean, again, it really started because of a voting rights dissent, but also had this kind of playful, as you say, spirit, uh, you know, juxtapose this serious uh, high court judge with a gangster rapper, but as Justice Ginsburg like Justice Ginsburg likes to say, they're both from Brooklyn. <laughs> um, Amazing. <laughs> so, so Julia Julia came up with the idea for the book. Went to Shauna. Shauna was as she's a baby at that point. She was in her uh, third year of law school, I believe, had just begun. She started the Tumblr in her second year of law school, and Shauna just said, "Sure, but I, you know, I want to write with somebody because I don't know how to write a book." Um, and so uh, through the great Anna Holmes, my former boss at Jezebel, who was first approached about this project, I ended up teaming up with Shauna and Julia and at a breakneck pace, writing the book together, conceptualizing the book. Um, I did the words. Shauna was in charge of the images. We came up with all the ideas together. We both did interviews. Shauna fact-checked it. And it was a labor of love that we juggled with at that point. You know, Bridget and I used to work together at MSNBC. I had a full-time job at MSNBC. Shauna was in law school. Uh, it was sort of a crazy pace. But what we realized is that 
no matter how many hours we were working, nothing could compare to Justice Ginsburg's own stamina. She can get by on two hours of sleep a night, and you see her high-quality output. So that was our real inspiration. Wow. So what's it like, just out of curiosity, what's it like to write a book with another person? I have to say that I really enjoyed the collaborative process of working in pairs. You know, ultimately, the actual words of the book I wrote by myself in a room, but that was only one part of it. Um, From the beginning, you know, we sat down and we figured out, like, what's each chapter? We had really, really strict deadlines because the book had to come about in a breakneck pace by book standards. Um, I think, let's see, it was about six months till the entire book was due. Um, So we sat down, Shauna and I, in my living room, and we figured out, you know, how do we organize this? What parts of her life are in it? What aren't? Um, what does the book look like? What does it feel like? You know, when you ask uh, what's, what is turning a Tumblr into a book, we thought about how we wanted this to feel like more than just kind of like a meme that somebody printed out and put between the covers of a book. Um, you know, and that's what I mean when I say, you know, did anybody turn a blog into a book that people wanted to read? Well, it's it's taking the spirit of it, but it's also thinking this is a story that people are going to want to read. This is a beautiful object that people are going to want to hold. This is going to have visual components and charts and annotated descents, you know, with handwritten in the margins by Justice Ginsburg's former clerks. So all along, you know, the story was a really important part of it. And the reporting that we did, you know, we interviewed her clerks and her children and people she worked with and so on. Um, That was a big part of it, but it was also about the entire experience of of having kind of different entry points into her story. And so for some people, that would be sitting down and reading the words of the book from beginning to end. And for other people, it might be like, wow, she was such a babe when she was young, and we have photos of that too. (laughs) And for some people, it might be, I would never read a legal brief. But now the key portions of it are excerpted in the book, and some of the most brilliant legal minds uh, like uh, Janae Nelson from the Legal Defense Fund, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, who is actually arguing these voting rights cases, writing in the margins on Justice Ginsburg's Shelby County dissent and explaining it to you in her voice and in a kind of conversational way, like your friend would break it down for you. So all of those different entry points we thought were going to be the way that the reader is going to experience uh, the story of her life in a way that they might not in any other book. Yeah, that's something that I I love about the book so much is that I'm not someone who would ever maybe read a legal brief, but I have this book on my coffee table and people who come to my apartment, you know, they're like, ooh, RBG, you know, it's, it's, there are so many different entry points, no matter what your, what your connection to RBG is. So, so out of curiosity, so what is your, like, what personally draws you to, to Ginsburg? What is it about her as a figure that you feel, um, you know, drawn to? Well, one of the essential mysteries uh, of the book was that that the book sought to solve is how did she become the notorious RBG? Because when you read about her uh, when she was first confirmed to the Supreme Court, everybody says that she's this moderate consensus seeker, she's shy, she's reserved. Um, But that's not really the whole story because before she ever was a judge, She was um, the co-founder of the ACLU Women's Rights Project, and one of the most important, if not the most important, litigators fighting on behalf of constitutional equality for women. 
And so in order to do that, she wasn't such a go-along, get-along kind of person. She wasn't sort of a, a, you know, handmaiden of the status quo. In fact, she was going in front of these all-male courts and arguing that women were people, which at the time, no Supreme Court had ever recognized. So that was pretty radical. But But there's a paradox in that her style was not so radical. Um, and what we understood in writing the book is that the way that she became that person is by suffering enormous adversity in her life. Um, she lost her sister and her mother very young. Um, while she was um, in law school, she was she was married and a young mother. And while juggling all of that, her husband became pregnant. Um, excuse me, her husband became ill with cancer. Um, she was a victim of pregnancy discrimination um, twice over. Um, she was repeatedly passed over for jobs despite being incredibly brilliant. And what she took from all of this was a kind of steely determination, but it was also very self-contained. I mean, she was not the person, you know, with her fist up in the air. Um, she was the person writing the radical brief and somehow convincing the world that she was being conciliatory and consensus seeking. And so for me, what was really fascinating was how did she become this person? And what's, what's incredible is that, I mean, history also forced her to become a person that she hadn't been to before, which is a fire starter. You know, the person who is going head to head with Donald Trump and who is writing fierce dissents and who's out on the road being in public in a way that very few Supreme Court justices have ever been, that person has been created by this historical moment we're in where the court has lurched to the right, um, where obviously the presidency is what it is, and she's the person for this historical moment. Whether anyone could have predicted it or not, she's the person who has the kind of stamina and steely determination to see it through to the end. Yeah, kind of going off of that, when RBG was first appointed to the Supreme Court, Clinton thought she was a moderate, but we think of her today as this badass progressive what do you make of this paradox? Well, I think part of it is, is she has genuinely become more comfortable using her voice in a fiercer way. And I think she there are some issues, in fact, in which I think she has moved to the left, so to speak, and but even though that's not what legal scholars would like to perceive it as. For example, I think there were some early decisions. I mean, she's always been fiercely pro-choice. She has always uh, fought for racial justice and to uphold legal remedies to try to uh, ameliorate historic racial inequality. Um, but, uh, you know, there were, for example, there were some um, criminal justice decisions that might be considered more moderate that she joined in the past. But in the past couple of years, there's been a dissenting block that is just her and Justice Sotomayor. Oftentimes she's joining, she's the only justice joining Justice Sotomayor's opinions in various cases that have to do with Fourth Amendment rights, and other issues that it's the, and the death penalty, um, it, it does seem like to some extent her views have changed. But what's also changed is that she's become more comfortable um, being a public voice. You know, Justice Ginsburg, I think, never saw herself as being in spending her life in the minority. You know, only recently did she have her first chance since she joined. Uh, the Supreme Court to assign a majority opinion, meaning that she was the most senior justice in the majority. She has always been the senior justice in the minority of the 5-4 math that happens on some of these controversial decisions. And so uh, <laughs> history has made her 
into the great dissenter, and she's embraced that role with gusto. Yeah, nobody can dissent like RBG. Yeah. I love a good blistering <laughs> man. I, I, like that woman can dissent. And she's got the yeah. swag. <laughs> yeah. She's got the collar. Yes, so that's actually a good question. Is it it's is it true that she so she's known for her collars? Is yeah. it true that she wears them specifically when she is going to dissent? She does indeed have a special dissenting collar, which interestingly is made by Banana Republic. Oh uh, she got it in a gift bag when she was Glamour Woman of the Year. And now, you know, she wears it every time she dissents a woe betide you. I mean, I even I got a chance when I fact-checked the book to show her a court sketch, because as you know, there are no cameras allowed in the courtroom. And so I showed her a sketch that we were going to use in the book, and I said, I just need to verify that this is your dissenting collar in this little scribble. And she said, yes. <laughs> um, I wonder if she wears it like and, when she's going to go argue with a dry cleaner. If she's like, let me put on my special <laughs> arguing collar. <laughs> Well, you know, fun fact, last um, September, she officiated at my wedding, and she, and everybody asked, you know, what is she going to wear? And my husband kept saying, well, I hope she doesn't wear her dissenting collar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. I hope she wore her agree collar, like, yes, I'm I'm okay with this union. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. She did wear her judicial robes, and I think, you know, some of the... Listen, some of those she just wears for oral arguments, just to be out and about. I don't know if she has, like, a special wedding color or not. I think she told me that the color that she had was sent to her by a fan. So she does wear fan crafts, if anyone out there has a descent collar that they're dying to make for her. Or, or sorry, an agree collar. Ooh. I see crafty Annie's eyes lighting I up know. over here. <laughs> I've got to go right now. <laughs> Podcast over. <laughs> New project. Yeah, i got to hit up those knitting needles. <laughs> So what, what was it? So you mentioned, I mean, she officiated your wedding, which I saw on Instagram and I couldn't believe it. Uh, what was that like? Justice Ginsburg loves weddings. I mean, obviously, she does not have time to officiate every single wedding that she's asked for. So it was a great honor that she came to Brooklyn, um, place of her childhood, uh, to, to officiate our wedding in September. Um she, you know, she was funny and gracious and amazing, and she stayed for dinner and the toast. During the toast, uh, my brother said that in lieu of toasting us, he was just going to read the entirety of Justice Ginsburg's dissent in Shelby County, and she burst out laughing. And so (laughs) that was definitely a highlight. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. I mean, one of the reasons that it was so special, I mean, she had met my husband before in the course of writing the book, and he was a great support to me uh, throughout the insane process of writing the book. Um, but she had the kind of marriage that any any person looking to partnership would dream of having. Um, her husband was a successful lawyer in his own right, but energetically defended her, uh, fought for her, advocated for her, supported her through difficult times in her life. I mean, they supported each other, but unfortunately, we really don't have so many models of marriage that are a true partnership where people take turns supporting each other. And so, you know, one of the things that we told her when we asked about it was that we really sought to emulate the kind of partnership that they had. Mm, That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I loved about her is that, you know, I think it's, when we talk about public figures who are women, oftentimes it's like, ooh, what's their marriage like? Are they married? But I think that because her marriage really was this, egalitarian model for how you can be a feminist and how you can be this, like, badass professional woman. 
but also have your marriage kind of exist as a way to sustain that work and not something that gets in the mm-hmm, way of that work, right. I think is is really unusual and something we don't often see. And we should definitely be celebrating it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, uh, traditional injustices are not so open about their lives. And I, I do think that there's a service. One of the reviewers of our book said this, and I've been thinking about it a lot. She was talking about the justice's willingness to, I think it was Elaine Showalter in The New Republic, writing about the justice's willingness to allow herself to be photographed and to talk about elements of her personal life and not really kind of, I mean, she can't, she is very private, but compared to how other Supreme Court justices have been in the public eye, she's open and generous in talking about the challenges that she's faced and also how she's made it work. And given that we have so few women in positions of power, let alone women, women in positions of power who are committed to feminist and anti-racist ideas, um, I think it's really important to figure out, like, how, what does that life look like? You know, what is, how do you, how do you make it work? How do you have a happy life? You know, and how she had a happy life. Her husband died in 2010, but they were together for nearly 60 years and had a remarkable, if not perfect, I mean, no, nothing's perfect, partnership. And, you know, the documentary RBG that's coming out has really exceptional, never-before-seen footage of RBG and her husband, Marty, interacting, where you just see what a love affair it was. I mean, it was a great intellectual and and personal and and familial partnership, but they were just in love with each other. It's just incredible to see it. And so to know that she could both contribute so much to the cause of equality and to the law and also be a human being, I think that, that it does a service for people trying to understand, like, how do you be in the world? Totally. So so kind of coming off that point, I know that relationships and friendships are very, very important to RBG. She's written quite a bit about her friendship with Sandra Day O'Connor, you know, both these awesome women who were on the Supreme Court. Um, but something that comes up a lot when people talk about her is her sort of, I guess, strange bedfellow friendships with people that you might not think that she would be super close with, people like that, like Anton Scalia, right? Do you do you see that as something that is, I mean, I, I always wonder, like, are they really friends? Are they, is this one of those things where it's like, oh, we get along super well, like, we have no problems, but really they're not, you know? Are these relationships a, a key part of what makes her her? Yes, I mean, I think in particular, her friendship with Scalia and, you know, with, with Sandra Day O'Connor was somebody who she didn't always agree with, of course, appointed by Ronald Reagan as well. Their friendships across different views of the world, I think, for her, were really important in showing um, that that human beings can talk to each other and work together productively uh, despite all their differences. And I think she's really committed to the Supreme Court functioning as it should. She talks a lot about collegiality. I mean, these these are very quaint notions in the Washington, D.C. of Trump. Um, or even, you know, the Washington, D.C. of Mitch McConnell. She told me when I interviewed her um, in 2015, Justice Ginsburg said, you know, maybe someday we'll have a Congress that works again. <laughs> and, you know, it's not, it's, not just, it's not just about friendship, although her friendship with Justice Scalia was real. I mean, they would spend New Year's together and they would go to the opera together and she liked that he made her laugh. I mean, she has a great sense of humor. People think that she's very serious, but in fact, she has a devilish sense of humor and he was very witty. 
But beyond that, it was also about strengthening the work of the court. Sandra Day O'Connor frequently crossed the aisle on issues of women's rights. She helped save Roe v. Wade in 1992 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And Scalia also, even though a lot of the times they disagreed, they would join together on Fourth Amendment decisions. And even when he was dissenting, like he did in U.S. versus Virginia, which was one of her most important majority cases, where she... Um, she essentially enshrined into law some of the work that she had been doing as a litigator, um, saying that the Virginia Military Institute could not bar women from entry. Even when Justice Scalia dissented in that case, she felt like he made it made her work stronger because he gave her a copy of his dissent on a Friday, and she said he destroyed my weekend, but he made my opinion so much better. So just thinking about the spirit of debate and truly engaging with each other and not in an ad hominem way has always been something that's very important to her. Let's take a quick break. And we're back. Yeah, you touched on um, two of her kind of big cases, decisions that we we were going to ask about. So um, we were wondering, what are some of the decisions and cases that you think define RBG professionally? Ones that she did as a judge or as a lawyer? Either, all of the above. Um, Well, you know, one of her her favorite cases that she did as a lawyer... uh, was Stephen Weisenfeld. It's a case that she started and took all the way to the Supreme Court, uh, I believe 1976. This was a case of a widowed father who um, was not given the same kind of parental benefits because he was a widower and his wife, who had died in childbirth, was a woman. The way that the tax code was construed there really only were these kinds of benefits uh, available to women from male wage earners. So she got each of the members of the Supreme Court enough for a majority to agree that this violated his rights as a man, as a father, to equal protection. It violated the dead woman's rights because her work was being treated as lesser than that of a man, and it also violated the rights of the child. Um, who wasn't getting the same access to caregiver benefits um, just because the, the caregiver who was taking care of him was a man. And so counterintuitively, you know, a lot of people at the time said, why are you bringing all these cases on behalf of men? It's the women's rights project, not the men's rights project. But her long game was that if you drew attention to the ways in which gender constricted everybody and also in limited the rights of men, more people would understand that the, what was at stake, you know, was much bigger than whether women could do just what men could do. It was about rebuilding a society in which everybody could participate equally. Yeah, you touched on something that I love about her career. RBG really kind of focused on the long game, right? So she thought about what are some achievable, winnable ways that I can chip away at gender imbalance? And she often, and this is like strategically very interesting, she often chose cases that involved men. And so, you know, like the case you just described where 
it's a it's clearly a gender imbalance, but you it's not one of the it's, people wouldn't look at it and say, oh, it's the women wanting something special, right? Like that's not how someone would look at it. And I think it's really this. It really shows a lot of savvy, right? Where a lot of people will be playing checkers and she's playing chess, where she's thinking about it in a, in a long term way, in a way that I think is often difficult. Like if you're someone who wants to make you know progressive change or social change, it's difficult to think of it as this will have a lasting impact down the line because you want something that's going to be like, I can see the results now. This is going to happen, you know, right away, very quickly. And she really just, I I don't know, I just really appreciate her strategic acumen when it comes to the cases that she took on and the the ways that she went about them. She was very strategic because when she began in the early 1970s, uh, no Supreme Court decision had ever said that discriminating against women was unconstitutional because all of the ways that the law treated men and women differently were construed as favors to women. So exempting women from jury service, um, treating them differently in the legal or political context, uh, fewer benefits and so on, um, preferring men over women in administrative cases, um, all of that was seen as women being put on a pedestal. It was seen as uh, doing women a favor, making women take mandatory unpaid maternity leave when they became pregnant, basically forcing them off the job. All of that was saying, we're doing you a favor, go back to the home, and you'll be taken care of by a man, even though that was not a reality uh that, was, that did not reflect every woman's reality, that they had a male salary to rely on, particularly women of color. And so by the end of her time going up against that barrier, uh, the court had come around to the idea that women also deserved equal protection under the law. But she did so by picking cases that were not sweeping. They were definitely step-by-step incremental. I think that that's one reason why she's become so radicalized in the last few years, why she has become such a fierce dissenter, because um, cases like Shelby County were activists. They, I mean, Shelby County gutted the Voting Rights Act, which had just been reauthorized just a few years earlier and signed by George W. Bush, you know, by bipartisan majority of Congress and signed by a Republican president. And here was this George W. Bush appointee, John Roberts, saying that racism is dead and we don't need the Voting Rights Act anymore. Wonder what he thinks about racism being dead now. And he, you know, did so on this sweeping theory that didn't really have grounding. I mean, the entire point of the way that the Supreme Court works is step-by-step cases building on cases. But the the protest has always been that it's liberal toward judicial activists. And in a series of cases, including this one, the court did act in a kind of sweeping way. And I, I think that helped create Justice Ginsburg as the notorious RBG out of outrage for the fact that the rules are not being followed. And her notion was that if we did act in an incremental way to try to create a more equal country and to try to um, make good on the promise of we the people, to mean all the people, that we had to do it in a step-by-step way to avoid backlash. Of course, the backlash has come anyway. The times have forced her to be you know, what she is now, which is whenever possible, she crafts a compromise. And there have been a few surprising times 
in the last couple of years where she hasn't dissented and where she's convinced Justice Kennedy, the key swing vote, to join her in really important cases, including cases involving uh, abortion rights and immigration. And, you know, recently also a case with, with Judge Gor- Justice Gorsuch. But when the time comes, she's ready with that hot dissenting pen. And her collar. Yeah. <laughs> and the collar. So something, this is a, just to switch gears a little bit, something that I, I spend a lot of time thinking about is the sort of progressive tradition that is present in, in the Jewish community. Do you feel like she is a, like, a, is this part of her legacy, like as a Jewish woman? You know, um, there are so many great examples of radical progressive fighters for social change who are Jewish and their, you know, their religion really informs why they come, you know, why they are involved in social change work, which I think is really beautiful and something that we don't talk enough about. Is this something that you see in her legacy? I know that she has talked about being inspired by the Jewish tradition that is very much based in law and justice and in in seeking justice. And she actually has uh, sort of like a quote displayed in her office, framed and displayed in her office about seeking justice in all things. But I also know that um, her early stirrings of feminism actually happened because as much as there is the social justice tradition in Judaism, like many religions, there's also a patriarchal tradition. And so when her mother died, she was not counted in gathering uh, sort of the quorum for prayer um, because she was a woman. And it was one of the first moments. She was 18, maybe 17 at the time. And immediately realized that she did not count as a mourner because she was a woman. And I think that that actually laid the groundwork for her feminism. So, yes, definitely. She draws on the tradition of Jewish uh, commitment to the text, which is very much a part of Judaism, legal, um, textualism, uh, close reading of of laws and the Constitution, certainly um, is something that's coherent with the way that, that Judaism is practiced in the United States and commitment to equality, but also, I think, questioning uh, the role of women in Judaism also helped make her who she is. Yeah, um, I wanted to go back to something you've mentioned a couple times, which is abortion. Um, Anti-choice folks like to point out sometimes that RBG has an issue with Roe v. Wade, but what's the reality of her thoughts on Roe v. Wade? Well, we talked about Justice Ginsburg's commitment to incremental change. When she has talked about her problems with Roe v. Wade, it has not been because she doesn't support a woman's access to abortion because she vociferously supports uh, reproductive freedom, whether that's the decision to use contraception, have an abortion, or she represented women who were being forced to have abortions by the government uh, and women in, in North Carolina, women of color who were sterilized against their will were also some of her clients. So the full panoply of reproductive freedom has long been a really core part of the work that she's done. But her problem with Roe v. Wade was twofold. One is that she thought that it went too far, too fast. So it struck down all of the criminal abortion bans in a single decision. And she thought that if uh, the court had moved more slowly, then potentially there would have been less of a backlash, which a lot of scholars disagree with, but this is her well-earned opinion. Um, a lot of people think that there would have been a backlash no matter what. 
The other problem that she has is with the reasoning of the opinion. She wanted it to be grounded in women's equality, not in the right to privacy. Now, there were equality arguments made to the justices, but they weren't ready to hear them at that point. Subsequently, there's been a lot more of understanding about how both liberty and equality are important to reproductive freedom. But if you read Roe v. Wade, as Justice Ginsburg has often pointed out, it talks about the doctor's right to practice. It hardly at all considers what this means in a woman's life. Uh, it was written by Justice Harry Blackman, who was had been a general counsel of the Mayo Clinic and was really sympathetic to doctors' arguments. And this notion of privacy, as you know, doesn't get you very far in a reproductive justice context, right? If, if it's your right to privacy, then do you have a right to, for example, get Medicaid coverage of abortion? Well, the court has found no, that you do not. Um, and that's certainly an equality issue that has a very different impact on low-income people and people of color in this country. So it's a limited doctrine, um, that doesn't take into account all of the court's other cases that are about equality of women. Um, and, and so I think if she were rewriting history, she's often said that she wishes that her case about an Air Force nurse, who the, the Air Force was actually saying that she had to either get an abortion on base because abortion was actually legal in on military bases, despite it being illegal in the United States, or quit. And so she wanted it to focus on the full option of reproductive choice and it being about a woman's right to chart her own course and the government not being able to tell her what to do. But this is the history that we have. Totally, totally. So my last question, what is something about RBG that would surprise people? What is something about her that you're, that you're like, oh, people don't know this about her? People don't know necessarily that she can do 20 push-ups. Wait, can she really? I've seen that. that reported. I love I, that. I don't, I don't know. Can she really? Um, actually, she worked out with Stephen Colbert uh, recently. It was and hilarious. I believe you can also, in the forthcoming documentary RBG, her trainer is interviewed, and you can see Justice Ginsburg work out. And she, there she is doing push-ups and squats and pull-ups. Um, maybe not pull-ups. But she is an 85-year-old two-time cancer survivor who has never missed a day on the bench. And uh, part of what accounts for her stamina is her fierce workout routine and her amazing trainer, uh, Bryant, who has his own book called The RBG Workout, which is an awesome book. There's an entire bookshelf of RBG books out there right now, and I love him and his book. We also have an illustrated version of the workout in our book and in an interview with him. Um, he's part of the reason that Justice Ginsburg, whose life is very important to the future of democracy, is able to keep her breakneck schedule because she works out every day and twice a week with him. I am so glad you mentioned that because that's one of my favorite facts about her. <laughs> she could probably kick our asses. <laughs> I, I, don't, I wouldn't put it that She comes in with that uh, collar. You know, I'm running the other way. Her, yeah. We did her workout um, for the Melissa Harris Perry show, RIP MHP show, <sighs> which was a great show. Poor one um, out for that show. <laughs> Yeah, um, and uh, and definitely by the end we were like, you win, Justice <laughs> I love it. That's like one of my favorite, I don't know if it's a meme, but one of my favorite RBG sayings is, what is it? It's, I'm going to butcher it, but it's like, um, 
RBG didn't survive cancer twice for you to stay in bed and watch Law & Order reruns, right? It's like this idea that if she can beat cancer twice, be, work out every day, be this badass mm-hmm. contributor to the Supreme Court, you can get out mm-hmm. of bed and, you know, turn off Law & Order and, like, go start your day. <laughs> I think about that almost totally. regularly. I'll- I think about it, too. I mean, I have to say she's exactly 50 years older than me, and I, uh, I'm exhausted just reading about her schedule, but it's definitely something to aspire to. Absolutely. Could not have put it better myself. Arin, thank you so much for being here today. Where can folks find out more about what you're up to? Uh, usually Twitter is the best way. Um, I'm just I-R-I-N on Twitter or Erin Carmon on Instagram. Also, uh, we, we recently came out with a uh, Young Readers edition of Notorious RBG, uh, which is available in bookstores and online. Um, it's for the 8 to 10-year-old reader in your life or really anyone who likes uh, a shorter, uh, clearer, more explained version of Notorious RBG. So you heard it here first. If you've got a little one in your life who is maybe a future Supreme Court justice in the making, go out and pick up this edition for her because it's going to probably change your life. Yes, or for him. Or for him, yeah, exactly. Totally. We should read about RBG. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for being here, Ruben. I really, really appreciate it. It's fun to be with you guys. Thank you. Well, Sminty listeners, what are your thoughts on RBG? Do you have the t-shirt and the book and the dolls and the Halloween costumes? If you dressed your child up as RBG for Halloween, please let us know. Tag us on all those Instagram photos. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You, on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast. And as always, send us your favorite RBG descent via email at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Mm-hmm. 